Hello there, and welcome back to Music Speaks, a podcast where we get to talk about music. Thus, in the title, Music Speaks. This is the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts people's lives, Hunter, people's lives. Mm-hmm. For this show, we have two co-hosts. Obviously, you know my name, Sean McCunis, and the fellow on the other side, his name is Hunter Sigona. Hey, Hunter. Yeah, I'm Sean. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our feature guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here is a musical quote for today. And, you know, I think the original recording of Ravel's Bolero, probably whoever played percussion on that will never have it played better than that. Buddy Rich, who clearly liked Ravel. So let us introduce our guest on Music Speaks today. Um, Ujjal Bhattacharya is an Indian-American percussionist based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ujjal holds a BFA in percussion performance with an additional major in mathematical sciences from Carnegie Mellon University, as well as an MM in percussion performance from Ithaca College under the instruction of acclaimed marimbist and pedagogue Gordon Stout. As a soloist, Ujjal has won or placed in several competitions, including the Encore International Music Competition, where he won first prize in 2019, the Ithaca College Concerto Competition, winner in 2019, Italy Percussion Competition, second prize, Marimba Category B, 2018, Heartland Marimba Festival Solo Competition, winner in 2015, Carnegie All... McCarnegie Mellon All University Orchestra Concerto Competition winner in 2014 and Great Plains International Marimba Competition third prize undergraduate division in 2014. He has also premiered solo marimba works by several composers including Gordon Stout, Marco Sharipa, and Josh Oxford. As a chamber and orchestral percussionist, Ujjal has played with several groups including Unpitched Percussion Trio Orchestra of the Southern Finger Lakes Nat 28 and Alia Musica. As an educator, Ujjal has given master classes at Tennessee Tech University, Fort Hayes State University, and Northern Kentucky University. He also co taught percussion methods and served as an assistant in music fundamentals as a graduate student at Ithaca College. Over the years, Ujjal has held many roles within the Heartland Marimba organization. He started a festival participant in 2014, became an apprentice. Uh, I'm sorry. Became an became an apprentice in 2015, and toured as an artist with the Heartland Marimba Ensemble in 2018. In 2020, Ujjal was selected to become a member of the Heartland Marimba Quartet, the premier ensemble of the Heartland Marimba Organization. Ujjal is currently pursuing an artistic diploma from Carnegie Mellon University as the first percussionist to be accepted to this highly competitive program in recent history. He studies under Chris Allen, Jeremy Branson, and Paul Evans. His other mentors and instructors include Gordon Stout, Matthew Coley, Conrad Alexander, and Greg Evans. So Sean, how do you know the guest for today? Hunter, you mentioned this right away, that he went to get his master's at Ithaca College, and that's where I bumped into him and knew immediately that he is a superstar in percussion. So 
hopefully you will know his name. He'll be a household name among musicians now and in the future. And I am just floored and so excited that he's going to be on our little student project here once again, as our friend Mike Teitelbaum was and so many other artists who came on. But I'm just so happy to talk to him today. All right. Well, without further ado, let us welcome Ujjal to our podcast. All right. Hey, Ujjal, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well, all things considered. <laughs> you know, ups and downs. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm doing very well, and we are very happy to have you here today. I was mentioning to Hunter, uh, you will be a household name very soon. Many people should know who you are because you have done so much so quickly in your short career. So I want to get oh. to the most important <laughs> question. I That's think, which is, which is, which is really important to me. Okay. Might be annoying to you. All right. How are, how are you doing? Oh, that's not an annoying question. And thank you for that really nice introduction. <laughs> that's, that's a bit too much, I would say, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, it's, it's ups and downs. Um, it's not necessarily a great time to be a working musician as, I think we're all very acutely aware. Mm-hmm. Um, so luckily I, I am still attached to an institution. Um, so I don't feel like this super intense pressure to be like out there working all the time. I can still be like, oh yeah, I still need to like work on my like practicing and like go back to the basics, you know. Uh, I still have homework. Yeah. Well, I don't have homework, which is the great thing, <laughs> uh, which is pretty nice. I just take lessons pretty much now. And then I have to give a recital every semester. Those are my only uh, requirements for the artist diploma. And yeah, so I've just been practicing and like almost just redefining my relationship with my instrument. Um, kind of all these deadlines are just gone now. So I'm just... I take space when I need to, and then I come back and it's a little bit more energized and actually like a little bit more passionate because it's like, oh yeah, I'm doing this because I want to, not because I have like 50 deadlines coming up tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. You said that um, you didn't mind answering that question, but I'm just going to play with that because when, when we were at school together, you'd be like, why do you keep asking me that, man? Why do you keep asking me that? Oh, that's because you asked me like 10 times a day. (laughs) (laughs) He does that. Because I I always wanted to try to see if people were okay if they needed something. You know, I wanted to be there to help them. You know, I just wanted to be be helpful, especially asking you 10 times a day was my, was my, my my go to. Um, And and with that, you were, you were talking about school. Let's get into this a little bit. Um, How are your studies going so far during this era of COVID-19? Uh, they're going pretty well, actually. I uh, I came to do the artist diploma because it was pretty independent already. Um, so really, the way that the program structured at CMU is really just you have time to do the stuff that you want to do professionally, and it's just really geared towards practicing and just trying to use the resources for yourself. You know, so I don't like I don't have the battle that other people do where it's like, oh yeah, I have to like deal with classes in this new environment. I basically just take my lessons 
I'm, I'm doing my lessons remotely right now, even though uh, I'm in Pittsburgh, but it's just a little bit safer that way. That way I can visit my loved ones without being so, so worried about like taking something to them because I haven't really left my apartment while I'm here. Um, but, but yeah, it's worked out. So I just basically practice and that's it for school, which is nice. I'd say it's a nice relief from taking class after class, you know. Allah Ithaca College, as they would say. Um, yes. Yes. Sitting yes. in a dark room, staring at nothing except your drum kit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, like Ithaca actually was really a nice balance for me. I thought I, I liked the coursework there and it was all music. That was something at CMU. I was just completely overloaded with the double, um, which helped me a lot with my work ethic. But I also like didn't sleep once a week for five years. <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. So it was nice to just be doing music and now it's like, I'm just practicing. So it's, you know, upward trajectory. <laughs> right. And hopefully using that as a segue, uh, Hunter wants to ask you a question about your mathematics minor. Oh yeah. Or the double yeah. Major, yeah. Yeah. The double major. Um, you know, what, what prompted you to get this, this second, um, the second major to, to go for the second major was it a decision made prior to entering school was it made after or or did you know like when you started doing it you're like oh i could do this mm -hmm. yeah so at least with cmu to do the double major like that i i had to be admitted when i went into school both as a math major and as a music major um so it was made in high school and like, honestly, a lot of it was my parents didn't feel super comfortable with me just going into music as a performance major. Mm -hmm. um, so they were like, okay, well, you can do, uh, you can do music as long as you have something, something else. else. Yeah, which I, I'm sure is like familiar oh. to a lot of people, <laughs> that, that idea. Um, and that actually ended up informing my decision to go to CMU because it was strong for both. Like it's like a very strong academic program and also for, for music it's really good too. Mm -hmm. um, so it ended up working out. Although I would say because it's good for both of those two things, like the coursework for math, I was, I was like three, I think I was like three or three and a half years advanced in math when I was in high school. So I was taking classes at Iowa State for math and then when I went to CMU, I had to take those same classes again, but it went from being like a walk in the park to like, just like excruciating, <laughs> you know? So really? yeah, just because of um, the program at CMU is just really, really intense, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of clears up the, although, you know, I have to imagine that probably gives you, well, I don't know how much, how in demand mathematicians are during COVID, but you know, it sort of covers your basis, right? You know, the music is sort of on hold, not on hold, but you know, not widely sought after at the moment. So mm -hmm. it gives you a, another avenue by which to sort of chug along forward, keep yourself going until things open up into a more productive uh, music environment, so to speak. Yeah, I would say actually, so, it's interesting you said that because 
that's how we all thought that the double was going to work. <laughs> but, but what really ended up happening were two things. I guess there is that element, but I'll say like three things. So one is I realized that I did really like computer science. So if I ever was to do something that wasn't music, it would probably be like do a coding boot camp for like an academic year and then mm-hmm. do computer science. Um, so I did discover that, which is very useful. And that kind of goes into the second thing where it's like, okay, well, if like five years down the line or 10 years down the line, like nothing is working, then I do have that out. But I think like the biggest thing was that I was like, okay, yeah, that's something I don't want to do. I just want to do music. Right. <laughs> like it almost just like reaffirmed that for me. Cause in high school, I, um, I did really, really, really like math. I still, I still really appreciate it. I think it's just attached too much to like, um, the amount of time and effort it took me to get through that double major, like kind of turned me off to it, at least for this part of my life. I still, I think I got a lot out of it. And I think if I'd never did that, I'd always probably be wondering what if, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. anything you put the, the time and effort into would be obviously very emotionally attaching. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that wasn't the word I was looking for, very emotionally uh well, I guess it was. Hey, ignore me. Yeah. All right, Sean, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Ujo, my next question is about. Uh, I like to ask this to various guests and, and see and see what their interests are. Um, so, if you're able to sit down with any artist, composer, author, director, producer, who would it be? And if you were able to go out to eat with them, where would you go, and what would you eat with them? Okay, so my answer for this might be a little corny. Um, it's two people. It's Gordon and Conrad, and I want to go to Hai Hong in Ithaca because that was probably one of my favorite restaurants in Ithaca, and those were two of my favorite people at Ithaca, and I miss them both dearly. Anything that you would talk with them about? Oh, man, it would just, just catch up and then, you know, um, shoot the crap. <laughs> Don't know what the audience rating on this podcast is. So. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Crushing it out of the park. All right. Yeah. Uh, moving back over to Hunter. Hunter has a question about your Italian percussion content. Ah, uh, yes. So pass it over to him. So I read in your bio that you uh, did a uh, competition in Italy. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Um, so my two... Um, my majors are music and Italian language. Um, So obviously, you know, I'm just curious to hear about, you know, how, you know, did you spend that much time there? How did you enjoy it? You know, did you like being there? Um, Anything in particular you found very interesting stood out to you? Yeah, I would say actually, uh, so I went to Italy for about a week for that competition because the actual competitive rounds there were, three rounds and they were every other day because there were other instruments and other levels going on. Um, so it was over the course of a week and that was probably one of the best weeks of like <laughs> my like professional life, I would say, yeah. or even like, it probably makes my top 10 of my actual life, you know? Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun. The competition was set up in, a hotel that otherwise would be a resort but it's in the off season so there weren't tourists and there mm-hmm. was a package where we got 
like unlimited food for three meals with drink, like uh, uh, wine, which was really nice too. And definitely like on the nights I competed, so I wouldn't have competition the next day, I would definitely like take advantage of the wine a bit, um, which was nice. And I also, I think I ate more than anybody else at that competition to the part, to the like, to the level that other competitors started to notice it and try to keep up with me eating just because it was so like the food was so good and we could have as much as it as we wanted and I just usually ended up eating enough for two people to be full on so it, it, I have to you know it, it would be hard to be there and not eat just in general yeah it's just you know it's so good yeah yeah it's um, you know I have relatives who live in Sicily and relatives who live up in Genova I don't know where were you uh, it was in Abruzzo. Montezuma. Oh, in Abruzzo. Oh, you were down yeah. south. Yeah. Yeah. That's very yeah, different. And I think the actual place is called Pescara. Pescara, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, that's one of the more known places in Abruzzo. But um, interesting. Usually when people go for music-related things, they go up to Firenze or they're in Milano. Mm -hmm. um, but, oh, Abruzzo. Oh, yeah, it, cool. it was. It was there. It's there every year. Um it's it's really it was a lot of fun. I think the other really notable thing that happened was I didn't know until I got there. There was apparently a bus that you could go from I guess from Rome there in like four hours. Mm -hmm. But I was like, oh well, you know, in America, like the buses break down and all that, so I don't want to mess with that. So I'm going to take the train and turn the four-hour bus trip into a 12-hour train ride after flying there. Yeah. And not only that, but I fell asleep for the last, there was like five connections and I fell asleep on the last train and missed my stop. Oh. I went to the next town over and my phone at that point was at 5% battery because I'd been flying from Ithaca, you know? Right. Um, so it was just like a race against my phone dying to get to the hotel from the next town over. Um, it's... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the public transportation system in Italy is not really known for its efficiency. Yeah. It's, you know, it is what it is. It's a beautiful country. You know, they have, a, you know, great culture. Infrastructurally, less than, less than efficient. Yeah. But I'm it, glad you it, had a good time, though. Yeah, it was nice to be able to get from place to place by train easily, though. I would yeah. say that. It's just... It, the race at like 10.30 p.m. with the 1% phone by the time I was getting close to hotel is just very scary. Yeah, that, that's less than ideal, especially when you're in a foreign country and you're like, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I assume you don't speak Italian. No, no. No, so now you're like, I'm in a foreign country, I don't speak the language, and people, you know, it's night and people might be wary and you're like, okay, we're going to make this work. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. I'll, uh, but I'm glad you had a good time. I'll uh, yeah. turn it back over to Sean. Yeah. So, Ujel, as you prepare to win or prepare to compete in these competitions and then eventually win, have you felt like you've had a pattern to all these or have they been sort of random into your, mm -hmm. into your preparation? Yeah. So I think um, from the ones that I like placed in, I, I guess like I, I do have like a pretty decent like placing to participating ratio. Um, but the ones that I would place better at, I think the most important things 
was really slow, deliberate practice, um, mental practice when you're away from the instrument, and also like just knowing your rep for a long time because the way that you interpret music and um, the way that it is prepared and like a level of like like fluidity that you have after knowing the music for like I would say like over a year um, is just like so different from when you're preparing for a competition like six months ahead or something like that which I did Mm -hmm. I did a lot of both Um, but then I realized like to get at the level to be playing in finals you just have to have that level of preparation where you can you really know the music inside and out and that's just that's what works perfection mm-hmm. that as a fact and musicality um, musicality and... like of course <laughs> and now getting back to more of your roots um i think hunter wants to ask you about how you got into percussion Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know you have this this math background. You have obviously the percussion background, music in general. What drew you towards percussion in the first place? I feel like most musicians get asked this question at some point. You know, what made you pick your primary instrument? Yeah, so um, my mom always wanted me to try everything. I guess so. I got to do all the sports at least for one season. Um, I wasn't very athletic, so a lot of those didn't really stick. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually started on piano when I was about five or five and a half, uh, cause my sister, my sister was undeniably way better than me at piano. She's seven years older than me. So like by the time I was born, she was already playing piano for a couple of years and could make her way around at least at like a basic level. Um, she got to be like very, very good later on, but, um, so I guess like even from when I was a baby, I heard the piano and I really wanted to play it. So I was like begging for lessons apparently at, at five or four or five. So they were like, okay, at five and a half, they started lessons. And then I, I played piano until maybe I was a junior in high school. Um, so that stuck for a long time. But in between, I did like chorus and I played violin and I can't do either of those things anymore to any level, I would say. Um, and then eventually, like, I started playing percussion when I was in sixth grade. And then uh, I think that that's probably what eventually killed me playing piano because I just took to it so much. And mm-hmm. um, my, my like, main teacher for percussion as, like, the years went on was Matthew Coley, who specialized in marimba, which is what I specialize in. Um, and he had been like the first American to place in one of the major marimba competitions in Europe. Really? So yeah, so he was a big deal and he still is. <laughs> um, and actually like he's a colleague now actually more than a teacher, um, which has been a very like interesting transition, I'd say. Uh, and he also, he's a marimba one artist and that's like what kind of what ingrained the marimba one, like the need to become a marimba one artist in me. Yeah. Uh, which finally happened a couple weeks ago, which was like very, like probably the biggest sense of validation, um, even above like placing in competitions, I would say is getting the, like being an artist. Hmm. It's, it's something, you know, it, and I, it's funny you mentioned about uh, teachers becoming colleagues. And I feel like that has a, that has a really big impact on 
you know, how you develop in your craft because, you know, when I did my student teaching, I did my student teaching with a teacher that I had in high school. And, you know, it's a very weird experience. I feel like something that you relate to also because, right, you're, you're learning from this person, you see this person as a certain way, you learn the methods that they're teaching you, and then you go back and now, like you said, they're a colleague, they're your peer. Maybe you don't see them that way at first, but now you're starting to understand not just what, the, what their method is, but why their method is what it is. Because they're, they're trying to teach you mm-hmm. to how to teach it. You know what I mean? Um, they're trying to show you the, the man behind the curtain, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that it might change people's perspectives. You know, they thought about something they thought about a, a method or a, a process a certain way, and then they realized the why they're doing it. And they're like, well, maybe I don't like that. Or, oh, maybe that is the right way to do it, definitely. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you see that in anything you've learned from working with the person you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. That's that's just huge. And like the the shift in dynamics is just like, it can be almost jarring, you know, Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, wait, like, if we're working on like the same or so basically, he's like, my boss for the Heartland Marimba stuff that I do. Um, So we're all in the quartet. Uh, There's I mean, there's four of us in the quartet, but he's the founder (laughs) and executive director of that. So I also get to I get to be some kind of director too for the organization. And it's just like, the level of collaboration is just like, so different than like, going and getting career advice from him or like um you know, just like taking lessons like now it's just like yeah I'll still look at get advice from him but it's not necessarily from exactly the same place and then sometimes he's getting advice from me and that's always like that's like super weird <laughs> it's like a yes. weird feeling um uh so that's that's there and then uh there's one other thing and like this isn't like in particular with Matthew um and it goes with like all mentors everywhere I think is like just knowing that like we all have our own way of doing things and realizing that that's like okay like so it's like oh yeah like I don't do this thing like this certain person and that's okay because I'm me and they're them or like just like that sense of like independence is just it's like a very strange place to come to and I think you guys did a session on imposter syndrome so you've probably gone through talking about all that stuff too <laughs> and coming to that level of self-acceptance is really difficult but yeah. I imagine it, it can be um, so now you know because now that we have accepted you um and hopefully you have accepted yourself uh we're going to take a quick break and return with some more of your thoughts uh but, but first uh sean has a message about our uh our uh, various platforms if he wants to mention the uh the handles Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to uh, tell our our listeners to please go out and listen to our podcast through various ways. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, you can listen to us on Spotify, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and much more. 
Uh, we are going to take a break. Like Hunter said, uh, you're going to hear a word about voting, and the ad is from Headcount, and please go check that out. That site is headcount.org. Please go check that out, and please vote in November. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about performing during COVID. You don't want to miss that, and we will be right back. Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voted registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. Are you registered to vote at your current address? More than 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register. Headcount.org is working to change that. At headcount.org, you can also check your registration status. Millions of people get purged from the voter rolls every year. Everyone should check out the registration status every year. The deadline to register to vote in some states is as early as October 4th, so you want to check before then. You can also request an absentee ballot to get info early on voting find your polling place, or see what's on your ballot. Headcount is a nonpartisan, nonprofit that tours with musicians to help concert attendees to register to vote. But you don't need to leave your house to register or get voting info. Just visit headcount.org. And register to vote at headcount.org. Pop up. Oh, there we go. Okay. So... We are back. And in the second section with Ujjal, you know, we'd like to ask about what, what it's like to perform during COVID, during the whole COVID crisis. It's something we're all sort of familiar with. We hear a lot about it. But for you, do you find there are more or less pressures and stress to be a musician in a performance via maybe online or in an environment like this? Um. I would say like yes and no. I think when I've I've always had a really hard time uploading things online, um, just because I'm never happy with the finished product, and it's the pressures <laughs> of anybody could see it at any time, and it's there for forever, you know. Um, so that pressure is definitely there, but mm -hmm. um, and also just like if it's online, it's got to be really good because of that um and i mean obviously live performance has to be really good too but because of like how energy gets transferred in a room um like musicality and performance plays a lot more in a live environment um mm -hmm. so i can kind of forgive some of like the blips and bumps that might happen there <laughs> so yeah. uh, that kind of takes some of that pressure off um and nobody's like sitting there. Well, hopefully nobody's sitting there with like a video camera waiting to review the notes later, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> it's nice to not have like that pressure in a live. Oh, wait, I, I got turned around on my words there. Uh, that is the extra pressure for an online uh, performance. But because it's online, you have a lot more control over what you put out there. Um, and because it's like recorded, at least what I've done so far has been recorded performances. Um, so I can 
I can do as many takes as I want. If I need to go in there and edit a little bit here and there, I can. I'm showing up on with my first like solo online performance is of a piece that Keegan Keegan Thornton wrote, uh, Skipping Stones for uh, Southern California Marimba's uh, data database concert. They have like a database of um, BIPOC composers and uh, he's on the list. So it was really nice to play that piece there. Um, it's, the, it's my first uh, produced marimba video where I have all the and oh, I just went and I made sure that pretty much every note on there is the way I want it to sound. Just like took a million takes one day um, and put it together. I think there's still two notes that are they're the right notes, but they're not exactly the sounds that I wanted. And you can probably find those if you listen hard. Mm -hmm. I guess it's nice to be able the performance going two minutes long to I guess like a three-day process of recording and editing um but yeah so I, I guess like there's the extra pressure of everything has to be really 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 like just undeniable and yet there, there's still the room to make it that way and not in just like one shot Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like doing all this online, it, it, a lot of it is very individual work. So I know Sean's uh, next question has to do with, you know, you as an individual. <laughs> sure. So, so I, I wanted to ask that um, I, I've actually done one of these before. I, I did one as a required recital for Ethical College. And I have to say the... Um, the the outlook of it was very interesting it was very um peaceful not as scary as i thought it was going to be because um it was just my family and they sat in this sort of room over there i played in this sort of area right here um for my listeners who are who are wondering what my house looks like you you don't want to know what my house looks like <laughs> i can't tell you where i live um saving that's for secret um but i'm just mentioning this because have you had that experience what it's very unique experience to perform live through mm. a, like a video camera or through like a laptop or something like that. Have you learned anything about yourself through that experience? Um, I guess, so I actually haven't done like the live Zoom performances yet. Um, right. I've done a lot of uh, the produced performance through the Heartland Quartet, which you can't really do that live because there's four of us and we're in four different places you know um I guess I've learned the biggest thing I've learned is that <laughs> it's a good thing I did all that Ross audio editing because I did all of the audio editing for those concerts and trust me there's a lot <laughs> I'm like uh some of the pieces that we performed weren't just like the four of us there were seven or eight people on some of those and while everybody's playing to a click, everybody's interpretation of it is different. So I was the person who went in and moved everybody's notes around and made sure that they all lined up at the end of the day, which took a, a lot, a lot of time. But if I hadn't done the raw stuff, then I would have been screwed, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's just like interesting how the little things that you do, um, even if you don't think that they're really that important, actually really add up. Right. And 
they can get you ahead in some things. Right. No, I think I think that's a beautiful sentiment, especially doing those small details, especially in, in work like that. Especially working online can be so so demanding, but also so satisfactory after you get a, a great result. Um, I'm not sure if you follow Matt Brockman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matt he's Brockman doing stuff. A lot of really great things right now. Just doing a lot of video editing, a lot of musical editing, and he's really putting all that together. And he's um, very tech savvy, unlike myself, because I'm using Zoom like a dinosaur. And so is Hunter. Hunter, I'm, I'm sorry, but you are a dinosaur. And he's giving me the thumbs up, which is fine. I've been a dinosaur since I was in sixth grade. I'm used <laughs> to it by now. You skipped um, the paleontologist dreams and just went straight for... Yep, Li- living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> so I will throw it back over to Hunter, who's going to ask you about how to use technology within technology, if that makes any sense. Hunter, take it away. Yeah, no, so it was just something I always think about. And, I, and you know, from a more scientific standpoint, you know, music is sound, right? And, and that's some of the biggest problems musicians have been having uh, doing any sort of online performance. Do you find there to be an acoustics issue, particularly with percussion via online performances? I mean, they can't usually be plugged in like guitars, uh, I mean, there are electric drum kits and stuff, but I mean, like, not that I know of, you can't plug in your marimba, you know, with a cord, <laughs> unless you have one of those electronic pads. Yeah, I was just gonna say the Pearl Mallet stations are there, which are pretty nice, but yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say like, the biggest issue, again, with uh, with this is just like, because the attack and percussion is so like, fast. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those like, minute editing is just like moving a few notes here and there just a little bit makes such a big difference or like if it hasn't been done it makes a huge difference um that's probably like the biggest audio challenge because everybody's recording at home with their own microphones so it's not like hard to pick it up it's just once everybody's like lined up even though they've been like playing along with the track or playing to a click like like the like millisecond or nanosecond differences just are so highlighted because the attack is so like short on the instrument. Yeah. No, that's interesting, right? Something very, very instrument specific. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think people, I mean, maybe even some musicians don't think of it, but I'm sure some non-musicians would never think about the technicality of the physical attack of the instrument, right? The, the, for those who, who might not know, the attack in this case would be the the, the mallet hitting whatever um, whatever instrument you happen to be using. If it's the marimba, it's the, the key you're hitting. Um, piano, it's the key. Drum, it's the drum head. Um, and so I, I think that's something worth mentioning. It's something people don't think of. So when they say like, well, you're playing live, like if you're live streaming, you're like, eh, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They, they don't they underestimate that where every single second counts, mm-hmm. which is the benefit of obviously live performance. That's why it's been around for thousands of years. Yeah. And like when you're live, you can, you can just adjust on the spot and like, right. like just since everybody is apart from each other, they're just their individual interpretation of time. It's like, everybody is the concert master in that situation, you know? Uh, nobody's following <laughs> nobody's following anybody else there so then that's why it, it ends up being that like it can get a little bit muddled and just like the attack of the instrument just 
uh, amplifies that so much. And I guess also that eight feels like a lot to me when I have to edit it that Mm -hmm. but like i guess if you have an orchestra where you have like a hundred people playing or something like that um maybe each person's attack doesn't matter at the same like level and also if you're like if they're bows and the attack is like not as sharp as it is just like hitting wood on wood or yarn on wood you know there's like a little bit of a slow like slow attack there so right things don't feel as dirty so fast they're not as exposed Mm-hmm. Everybody being their own conductor sometimes happens when we're even in person when no one likes to look at the conductor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's my music educator's gripe for the day. Um, all right. And with that, I have one more question, which really it does have to do with live performance. No one can see, but I'm distracted because I'm itching my eye. I have something in it. Um, so I'm trying to read this question with one eye. Uh, the live performance aspect of this is obviously what everyone is missing. And how do you think in the long run, in a post-COVID world, as however, however uh, far off or near that is, how do you think live performance are, is going to change in that, that world? Or do you think it's going to? Uh, I think it'll change in a couple ways. I think, well, one, I, I think it's gonna be a long time before things are coming back and how they're used to, but I don't think that, I don't think it's actually really necessarily going to be like it used to because now we have all this like extra stuff that we're able to do. So the people who probably will be successing, like <laughs> will be the most successful uh, in the future are the people who get really used to being able to promote themselves doing virtual performances, um, which is like, it's good that like for the Heartland Quartet, it's uh, like Matthew is based in Iowa, I'm in Pittsburgh, Joe's in Arizona, and Christina's in California. Um, so in a normal live before COVID, uh, the only performance that would be coming out are the ones that are live. But now we would be able to produce these virtual performances anyways, and just like have a little bit more visibility like the quartet does i i think probably like four or five two-week tours i'm new to the quartet so i i can't give the number like right off the top of my head um but over the course of the year it's like maybe 10 weeks of touring or something like that total um which is great but also like during the off time there's not as much visibility so it, it could give that potential for like uh more visibility during the off time but on the other hand that's a lot of like low-income work to do extra you know and I think it's going to be like a must you know to be to be an organization or to be an individual you're kind of going to have to do this all this extra stuff that's not going to pay the same as a gig would you know but I guess that that's like capitalism <laughs> <laughs> ups and its downs right yeah. <laughs> and with that speaking of promoting ourselves socially we're going to be headed to a quick break but in case you wanted to know Ujjal and even if you didn't want to know I'm going to tell you anyway um, we are on many platforms and if you would like to follow us which you should um our listening outlets, like Sean mentioned before, 
can be found through our many social media platforms, which are Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you would like to find us on those, we are at, for Twitter, at MusicSpeaks underscore pod. For Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. And for Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. So reach out to us on those and give us some feedback, express any interests or disinterests you might have. Um, and we're going to go to the break now, and we'll be right back with more of Ujjal. Okay, and we're back with uh, Ujjal with whom we are going to discuss our next big topic, which is in this case, collaborating with composers, which I know you've done quite a bit of, Ujjal. And one person that Sean mentioned is Keegan Fountain, who is apparently a friend of yours. Um, and what's it like to have a friend write a piece for you? Oh, it's really cool, I would say. I, I actually haven't, I haven't had Keegan write a piece for me personally, but he is the first person that has put my name on a piece, I would say. Ah, uh, yeah. For his vibe solo, I dream of the moon. Um, it's a really great uh, twelve-minute work, I think, uh, about a young child who dreams of going to the moon and builds a spaceship and goes to the moon <laughs> and sees uh -huh. aliens and stuff like that. It's really cute. It sounds um, like an episode of Harold and the Purple Crayon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or it's like very like. It has like a very Calvin and Hobbes vibe to it. Um, and I actually had my friend uh, Nehemiah Russell draw cartoon panels in the style of Calvin and Hobbes that I get to project while I play it. And I think oh. that that ultimately is probably what got my name on the piece. <laughs> and I guess I, I premiered it too. I just, I performed that piece now uh, to, like about seven or eight or nine times in just different places. Um, and it's nice to see it kind of grabbing hold because what I did was I played a, a masterclass series last, last year. Um, and I, everything I played on that concert series was something that I had had the pleasure of premiering. So it was like, I got, except for one, that was a, arrangement of Alberto del Gracioso by Ravel. Um, oh, that's a cool it was piece. Like a, yeah, it is a really cool piece. And the, uh, it's a lot of fun to play on marimba too. Um, but it's like I got to take my little catalog around and be like, this is all the cool music that my friends wrote, you know? <laughs> um, and then like, see, people like always love the I Dream of the Moon piece, but it's, it's especially nice to see now that some of those are people, those people are like gonna start playing it, and it's nice to see the piece grow that way. Um, that's probably like one of the most rewarding things that I've seen happen with like collaborating with, with a composer is like not just the work of like playing it and working with a composer to like have it written, how like like just like going through the editing process and stuff like that, but seeing other people start to play it is like something really special. Mm -hmm. um, and is, is it nerve wracking for you? Like, even if it's not, you know, something that they wrote specifically for you, um, premiering a piece like you mentioned, is that nerve wracking to do? 
yeah, it is definitely nerve wracking to play a piece that somebody's written for the person who's written it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because they're always going to have an image of what it should sound like in their head. And, you know, they're like 99% right about that image, you know, because <laughs> they wrote it. So that's a little scary. I, um, one of the other pieces I played on that that uh, masterclass thing was uh, Two Celestial Offerings by Marco Sharippa, who actually went to Ithaca um, a while back. And that was really nervous, like really, really nerve wracking um, to play that for him because I hadn't been working with him in person on it, really. Everything I'd worked on it with him was online sending a video every now and then or like him having critiques and then like playing it for him in person was pretty nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, and I think Sean wanted to mention something about one of those specific composers. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to mention when you did one of your recitals at Ithaca college, you, you did, uh, you, you talked a little bit about your experience playing a piece that Josh Oxford wrote you mm-hmm. and how challenging that was. Yeah. And, and you were telling him, you were telling the audience, you were saying it was really challenging to perform this in front of Ox because Ox has this incredible mind and can never be tarnished or, or shaped in so many different ways because he's such a unique person. Um, so with that in mind, and one memory that I have of of that piece is right at the end where you had to like tiptoe your arm all the way to the end of the marimba and go at the end there. I thought that was kind of like it's just so amazing. How difficult was it for you to perform it initially in front of Ox? Was it was it hard? Yeah, that that piece that Sean's talking about is uh the most technically difficult piece I've ever played. <laughs> really? Uh, basically, I, and like for that matter, it's probably one of the most technically difficult pieces I've seen anybody play because at the time that he started writing it for me, I was working on some like pretty chops intensive pieces and I played them all for him and he was like, okay. I'm just going to write a piece and it's going to be all the hardest parts about all these really choppy pieces <laughs> all at the same time for seven minutes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, that element of it was like certainly very nerve wracking. I think I didn't, I, I, I had hung out with Ox a few times before that performance. And I think that not knowing him added not knowing him as well as I might now today and also now that I've I've performed that piece maybe five or six more times since then um so it's not as scary now uh but yeah I was definitely like pretty scared for that performance especially because it's so far out of my reach but then I was talking to him later like maybe a week or so after the the concert and I was like man that like I did my best with that. Uh, sorry for anything that didn't come to your expectations with the piece. Uh, just because I physically couldn't execute some of the stuff that he wanted at the time. I had to like kind of sh- shape things or like take out a few notes here and there just to like make it playable for me. And he was like, yeah, you know, like 
uh, my goal is not necessarily to play stuff that's, or to write stuff that's playable today. It's to write stuff that's playable in a few years, you know, and that really comforted me with that because it was like a rite of of spring. Like he, he wrote it beyond the ability. And, you know, now like everybody can play that, you know, or not, not everybody can play it, but everybody aims to play it. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And it is achieved by many. (laughs) Um, Mm. But so I guess knowing that he wrote it with an expectation that it was going to like really push my limits and he is more forgiving than I thought that he would be about it was really nice. Um, And I still, I bring that piece out every now and then to kind of like litmus test how far I've come in advancing, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe one day I'll play it at the level that I want to, not that I'm playing it like poorly by any means, but uh, I still, I still have to do like a pretty heavy, heavily edited version of it sometimes to make, like, there's just, there's just stuff in it that is not super, super physically possible at (laughs) right now for me, but 10 years from now, I'll be playing it everywhere. When you, (laughs) when you have arm extensions, I believe that would be possible. Yeah, when I have arm extensions and my my uh, I get like immunity to carpal tunnel or something like that. Oh my god! <laughs> um, with that sort of idea of playing really hard things, Ujjal, have you ever came across a, a composition where you would just be like, "No, nah, this is I can't do that," or sort of be in that in that sort of span of time with with a composer? had a misconception about writing for percussion what has that been mm-hmm. like for you um i think so that sorry let me gather my thoughts for one second here sure. uh that's a great question so i definitely have done that a lot but i haven't done it recently and i think that it's because when i was younger and i would i was an undergrad uh I like CMU is a pretty like classical orchestral school, which is great. Um, but also the there wasn't as much collaboration with composers at the time, so I wasn't used to used to talking about those kinds of things with composers. Right. So um, I was like, oh yeah, like. Ravel, Piazzolla, I guess Piazzolla is not like necessarily like orchestral percussion, <laughs> but like- But he's cool. But he's cool, you know, like that, like kind of like really tonal music is what resonated with me the most. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, that's the stuff that I feel like is good music. And the other stuff I can be fine dismissing. But I think, especially once I came to Ithaca, the first thing that I did right off the bat with uh, Lindsay Eastham and Ben Cordell uh, was we did like the unpitched uh, trio percussion concert where we were just playing new music that was written for us and that just like really like ex- expanded my brain in some ways and just like got me away from the approach of like just like dismissing things because I didn't like them on the first listen you know and I got a lot more used to giving things like a second chance and a third chance and especially like when something is like really unidiomatic realizing that like maybe I can just change 
what's idiomatic for me and make it happen you know so it's like it's definitely been a mindset change i think since then i haven't really been like maybe with the exception of ox's piece i there were some things that was like okay yeah i like i can't do that can you can you change that for me please um for the most part i haven't really ran into that that much since then because okay. i it's like a matter of being more open-minded in some ways I also want to ask you one last question before we hit another, uh, before we go into the next subject. Um, I want to ask you about your, 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 your time with playing music. You've had a lot of really great pieces. Like one of my favorite pieces that you got to perform was with uh, one of your friend, your undergrad friends, Ethan. Who <laughs> Stop was, it. I think, I think, which is, I think one of the coolest pieces ever written for percussion and voice. <laughs> so so cool and I, I loved every second of it um so i want to ask you this what was a piece for you that has sort of been meaningful to another composer have you had that experience yet or were you able to perform something and then you were able to sort of see the impact of it i think that um i felt that like that connection the most with keegan and his music um there's something about Keegan's music that just resonates with me. And I think really with most people who hear it, um, it's, it's like very accessible, but still challenging. And there's almost always like a message there and it's very clearly heard, you know? Um, so in a way, like that stuff all happens by itself, <laughs> you know, but it's definitely really nice to be able to like perform something and then like, King will hear it and he'll be like, oh wow, like this is this is like what I wanted, or something like that. Or like with the with the slides that I think the thing with the slides was the biggest thing because I don't think that he expected that to be done. Um, getting the Calvin and Hobbes-esque cartoons drawn for his piece. Uh, but when that was like a finished product, it was just like, you know, that was exactly what not the piece needed it but it like took it to a different level right. and he finished the work right i know that you only performed one movement from that entire work no i played the whole work oh you did at, okay. at, the, at that recital i only played one movement but i played okay. the whole work oh yeah i premiered the whole work at, he actually wrote that when he was a sophomore or something like that he he wrote some of these pieces when he was like very young i guess in terms of my expectations, my personal expectations, like that was like very young for a work like that to be written. Just in case we all needed to feel more inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it. Like, no, no, I know. <laughs> Hunter is just very insecure about composition for young composers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, we're gonna move along and Hunter, you're gonna talk about being a virtual teacher. Yeah, so. With, with Ujol, Ujol. Take, sure. Uh, take it away. So, you know, I'm sort of gonna, I'm gonna skip the, the first question we had planned. I'll let Sean ask it. But what he mentioned was, you know, being a virtual teacher. I mean, it's just, there's so much you could say about it. Probably not a lot of it is what, what people want to hear because it's rather pessimistic. But what do you think about something that is easier because of being an online teacher? Um, I think that provided the work is done 
it can be easier to hold some students accountable for mm -hmm. their practice if you have like video assignments that they have to fulfill it can be like there can be like some deadlines with that you know and then that's something i actually did at ic uh before covid stuff was in percussion mesh it percussion sorry I was not, and that's actually something that has happened with me speaking on a more and more frequent, more and more frequent basis, <laughs> that I have troubles with actually speaking. Um, but uh, yeah, I would have people in percussion methods uh, record video of the technique that we were working on at the given class period and then I would give them feedback and then that kind of got them to actually practice. Um, and I just did my first round of that with my students for TRIPO, which uh, I think has worked so far and we'll see if it continues over the coming weeks. Um, I hope it does. But yeah, we, we definitely did the whole like try playing along to this metronome or try playing along to like me conducting and see how that sounds and it doesn't sound good. <laughs> it's because... rather rather like a cascade effect of sound. Yes. I think there should be some element in Zoom that like pings the the time, like the, the time on each person's computer and it mm -hmm. sends it back so it can measure the delay and then sends them the video at an offset so that eventually the video that comes back is together. That maybe there can be a buffer. Maybe there can be like, yeah, maybe there can be like a buffer so that everybody's eventual output can come into the together. Well, you're the one who said you like computer science. Invent I, it. <laughs> <laughs> I do like computer science, but I'm not there yet. Let me fail for like 10 years and then I'll talk. No, I was going to say it might be a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned before, you mentioned tripo. So I'm assuming that means the three liver, three, not three livers. That would be, <laughs> that'd be tripo. Um, the three rivers, young people's orchestra, yes. um, which I know Sean wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So you, you mentioned to us early on that this is sort of your first sort of work with them and sort of your sort of like uh, promenade as they would say with sort of working with people the first time so I want to ask you this um, I think Hunter did ask you about what is easy um, what do you find hard about being a virtual teacher I think it's the abridged like, version because <laughs> there's a the lot yeah, there's a lot that's really hard about it I think the hardest thing is like uh because people can't play all at the same time in an organized fashion, it's really hard to gauge everybody's playing levels if you've never met them before, mm. which is kind of the case that I'm in. So like the oh, first yeah. homework assignment I gave them was like, okay, play whatever you've been playing recently. doesn't have to be like a perfect recording. I just need to see your hands moving, you know, because I can't like go through and give everybody like five minutes to play or we'll just run out of time. Sure. And also just, I know that, uh, from some previous information I have, I know that they all want to like be working as a team and like collaborating and getting to know their fellow percussionists, which is just like really hard to do when like it, there's not a very easy way for everybody to play together. So one of the one of the things I'm trying to 
do, and I'll, I'll keep you posted on this, how it, depending on how it works. Um, everybody will be playing like a certain piece with different parts. And this works because it's more of a chamber thing. One person will have their screen unmuted and the rest of them will have it muted. So they each at least get to play together in their perception with one person at a time. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, so at least there's like some level of everybody's playing at the same time. I can't hear all of it, but they'll get that sensation of playing with somebody else. Right. So finally, uh, Ujjal, I want to ask you this question. Um, after a long day of teaching online, um, do you find yourself to be, is it, is when you're teaching online, is it tiring or is it more mentally exhausting because you've been looking at a screen for so long? Uh, yeah. So it could change as the weeks go on, but I mean, so far I've only had like one day or two days with the, with the students and it's been more me just being nervous to like talk to these people who I'm meeting for the first time, not in person. <laughs> so it's like, it's a little bit more of like a social anxiety for me right now. Um, but I'm feeling optimistic about it, I guess. Okay. And it's not like children are judgy at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will bounce it over to Hunter and Hunter will ask our last question. Okay. All right. So for you being, you know, doing many different things, teaching, work, practice, all that. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? Um, it's like, okay, so I start with my morning existential crisis block. Ah, lovely. <laughs> Everyone needs to, you know, block that yeah. time out. Yeah, so I mean, I think my day-to-day -day is mostly just practicing a decent amount. Uh, although I would say decent has changed. The definition of a decent amount of practice has changed over the past few months. I think like uh, when I was an undergrad, I could practice for like six to eight hours a day and like be fine, I guess, which is like, I guess an average amount for whatever. But um, now I'm like, okay, if I can get like three hours in on a day without like feeling like uh, my career is going to go into nowhere because of coronavirus, um, <laughs> I can like call it a good day, you know? <laughs> um, Avoiding a mild panic attack. Yeah, if I can, yeah, if I can avoid that, it'll be good. Uh, and I've been working on cooking, which hmm. has been nice. I've learned a lot of my mom's recipes. Uh, which has been really, really nice. I'm learning to roll my rotis round instead of irregular shapes. Uh, those are the little victories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so funny that you mentioned cooking. That's, that's sort of where I found myself right now when I'm in the midst of looking for a job and I'm long-term subbing for a field in which I have zero experience. Um, the culinary and bake shop uh, classroom. Uh, and like you, you know, it's funny, of course, I don't know how I get myself into these things. But um, like you said, you know, it's funny, you, you start to take time to think about things you hadn't in the past, like cooking or baking, and you say to yourself, oh, maybe it's time to learn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, um, luckily, I live 
in my my apartment situation it's like it's a nice apartment but it's also like cheap enough that i am not so worried about making ends meet with my current income so i'm just taking my time to make sure that i'm not like burning out and like i'm trying to be like the least stressed i can be right now if that makes any sense and i feel like that's what's going to be productive for the future for me personally yeah Mm-hmm. Now you're in Pittsburgh, correct? Mm-hmm. But where are you from? I am from Iowa. Iowa. Okay. I wasn't sure. I didn't remember if that was in your bio or not, but yeah, Iowa. I, don't okay. I don't think it is. So all of your, so is your family in Iowa? Yeah. My parents are in Iowa. Yeah. They're in Iowa right now. For some reason saying Iowa just like made me feel, I, I thought I said it wrong, but it, it really is <laughs> Iowa. Uh, <laughs> the more the more we say it, the most the more wrong it's going to sound. Yeah, they're in Iowa. Um, my sister, uh, my sister, and like her husband and their daughter live in Cincinnati, um, and they're both doctors. My brother-in-law just finished his residency in ER stuff, and my sister's doing a double residency in psychiatry oh and family medicine. Uh, so she's busy, um, but they just had a vacation like or vacation days i guess they didn't go anywhere because you know um the but then they, yeah they all tested negative my parents tested negative and i tested negative so we had like a spontaneous family reunion in cincinnati this past weekend which was really nice oh that's nice and how long did it take you to get there uh it's about four and a half hours or five it's not so bad okay yeah i was gonna say it probably i would have thought longer so that's probably yeah. a good thing but well, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, I made. I did make the drive to Iowa from Pittsburgh in one shot at the beginning of coronavirus. Um, so that was fun. Nice, like seventeen hours of driving. <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. No, yeah. yeah, that's what you look forward to. Looking yeah, at that definitely. clock, and you're saying, "I'm. I've been doing this a while. I'm four hours in, not even halfway there." Right. Yeah. Man, that sucked. Yeah, that's, that's not ideal. I, I commuted to and from one of our towns here in Connecticut, Meriden, and we live in, uh, we live in Trumbull. And, you know, it's like a 40-minute drive, and, you know, you're, I'm used to my three-minute commute across the street. And, you know, you go, you, you're doing it, and you're like, oh, yes, I'm a half hour. Oh, I still got – oh, look, there's traffic, so now I'm 15 minutes out. Oh, no, now it's 20 minutes like oh mother of god yeah <laughs> one of those things but yeah yeah so uh well you've satisfied my curiosity and i i've found it very interesting to to talk to someone who you know they're somewhat new at the game in terms of you know the covid music world and uh but also has experience in it and uh yeah i i, I want to thank you for your Uh, for your honesty and for being here in the first place. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm, of course, I'm I'm so happy to, to have you here and just to, to, to let our listeners know, please go look up Uja because he'll be the next star in the next few years. Please know who he is because he's going to be great. Um, Stop it. (laughs) Like, no, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. 
Um, so here's, here's, here's my question, Rujal. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get going here? Anything up to? Man, I mean, we talked about a lot of stuff here. <laughs> I, I don't have any burning extra new topics to talk about here. Any burning news? Anything that you're going to be up to in the, in the near future? Uh, oh, I guess we do have an online composition festival coming up this next week for Heartland. It's a three weekend long um, festival. Yeah, uh, we'll be having composers write 30 second etudes that are, I guess, etudes for them and for whoever will be playing them eventually, uh, which is kind of, I guess that's, I haven't seen that done before where those etudes will go into a book of Etudes written by composers, not by players. We'll see how that goes. I think it'll be exciting. And then after the festival is over, we'll have about a month to put in to learn and perform 13 new works for Marimba Quartet. Hmm. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. All right, Ujal. It was a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully you can come back soon. We can keep talking. Yeah. Thank you so much again. Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See you. Right. Bye. Next time, we'll be sitting down with flautist Nicole Murray to discuss her musical experience and her work as an assistant with the Buffalo Philharmonic. That's it for me. I'm Sean Ancunas. And I'm Hunter Sagona. And keep listening to what you love.